Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, May 14th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, find out why advocates for Mississippi's poor are blocking traffic in the streets of Jackson. And in StoryCorps, a firsthand account of what it was like living in the Delta during the Civil Rights Movement. Then, how a recent Supreme Court ruling could boost Mississippi's revenue. Illegal sports betting industry is on the ropes. And the court's decision is a victory for the millions of Americans who seek to bet on sports in a safe and regulated manner. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi advocates for the poor are calling for a moral revival that confronts poverty in the state. Yesterday, they rallied and blocked traffic at an intersection near this capital to draw attention to the issue. Members of the Poor People's Campaign held hands and sang songs while traffic backed up. Jason Coker is national director of the advocacy organization Together for Hope. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier more about the movement. This is happening simultaneously across 41 states in the country. And we'll do this every Monday for six weeks. And at the end of that six weeks, all of us will go to Washington, D.C., and we'll speak with one voice and ask America to be better. And it's not America. It's, it's really the government. I mean, can we pass policies that work for all Americans and not just the wealthiest Americans? Will politicians pass policy for people who don't have the money to buy them? I mean, this is uh, critical, and all we have right now is democracy. That's our only recourse. The people can vote. And that's in jeopardy now, too, with gerrymandering and all the kind of this idea that there's voter fraud out there. This is not the case. And the suppression of minorities in this country and and stopping them from voting, this hurts our democracy. And so all we have is kind of our democratic capacity to vote 
and elect people who will then pass policies that's best for this country. What do you say to people who say the government cannot take care of everybody, the government can't institute policies that taxpayers can't afford to pay, and that uh, the needs of people have become so great that the nation can't afford it? Well, there's a social contract. There's the government, there's the people, and then there's business, right? Right now, the social contract is utterly tilted towards business. And businesses don't pay their fair share. And that's a matter of policy. So all we have to do is change policy to kind of right that wrong. And, and the government actually stand up for the people instead of for businesses. And I'm not anti-business, but there's got to be a balance there. And when there's balance, there is enough. There's enough money right now in America for people not to live in poverty. But the reason we have the situation we have today is because those policies don't support that kind of distribution. There's a mass redistribution happening right now, and that mass redistribution is taking away the social safety net in order to create massive tax breaks for the wealthiest people in this country and corporations. And that's a matter of policy. So there's plenty of money in this country without having to live in poverty. If we're really the greatest country on earth, like so many Americans believe, let's start acting like the greatest country on earth. Uh, A livable wage. How are you going to get companies to come on board with that because that's going to affect their bottom line. The hard thing about kind of where we are right now at a minimum wage, in the state of Mississippi, in the city of Jackson, a mother with a child would have to work two and a half full-time jobs in order to live at the working poor line. That's an issue, right? Why do we say to people, you have to work two and a half full-time jobs at minimum wage just to be at the working poor line? In other words, wages for the the base in in America haven't increased uh, the way inflation has. The median income in this country has stagnated since the mid-70s, and yet automobile prices have gone up, gas prices have gone up, home prices have gone up. And so the middle class and below really struggle in in America, and and our dollar doesn't stretch as far today, and that's because of the policies that we've passed. And honestly, If corporations, specifically in Mississippi, if they want to come to Mississippi and have a business here, our labor, the labor force of Mississippi, is what's going to make you profit. Why would you cheat them out of the money that they're working for, right? I hear people talk about taxation as theft. Well, profit on the backs of labor, that's theft too, because you wouldn't have that profit if you didn't have that labor. So how do you create a fair, livable wage for all these people who create profit for your business? I think that's a legitimate question and a moral question. You're raising all of these issues. What happens after that? We have to look at the the government, all our governments, from the municipal level to the federal level, and ask ourselves real value questions. Are these policies policies that I would live and die for? Are these policies, like our religion says, do these policies take care of the least of these? Should churches be doing more? Absolutely churches should be. And not just churches. 
all religious faiths. I mean, the three big Abrahamic faiths, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, we all have within the core of our values uh, a concept of taking care of the most vulnerable in society. And right now, this country does not do that. And the churches, all the religious institutions absolutely have a place in society for that. But churches don't have the capacity to take care of the social welfare of the United States of America. The United States government, that's, that's where that happens. And I think that faith organizations and governmental agencies can absolutely work together for the betterment of society. We get to make these choices. It's up to us. Advocacy Director Jason Coker. Jameson Taylor is Vice President for Policy at the Mississippi Center for Public Policy. He tells our Desiree Frazier he disagrees. The road to poverty begins with government control. That's the history of the world. I mean, the king claimed that he owned all the property, it belonged to him, handed out the spoils to his friends. The promise of America is that we reverse the equation to let each person keep the fruits of their work, to guarantee that right to individual property. And yes, we have not always lived up to this ideal. We have a lot more work to do, but the secret is the same. We work hard, take personal responsibility, and we know that that way out of poverty is teaching people to fish and then expecting them to fish for themselves, not just giving them fish day in and day out. In terms of talking about um, a livable wage, what is keeping companies from paying people a minimum, um, not a minimum, but a livable wage in your estimation because uh, rents are going up, uh, people can't afford rent because the market rates are so high and low-income housing is on the decline. So why aren't companies willing to pay a livable wage in your estimation? What have you found in your studies? Well, I think you see a number of dynamics that are that go into play when employers set wages. And we talk about affordability, for instance, affordable housing here in Mississippi. One of the things that is making housing unaffordable are um, basically liability that landlords and apartment owners have. It's called premises liability. It increases their exposure to lawsuits. And so you see a lot of apartment uh, investors, for instance, they simply do not want to come to Mississippi because of the legal obstacles that they face as owners. And so what we see in that that is that um, protecting property rights is the road out of poverty. Once Once we protect individual property rights, we let people keep what they earn. We let people start a business. We remove those obstacles that keep people from pursuing their own opportunity and their own dreams. Then you're going to see people become successful. And we know this because after there's years of economic research that shows that the solution to poverty is simple. It is simple, but it is hard. It's called the success sequence. The success sequence requires four steps. Get a high school degree, get a job, get married, and have kids in that order. Do these four things in that order, you have a very high chance of being successful in America. You have people that are working minimum wage jobs, and they're married, and they have children, and they are having a hard time making ends meet. So where is the correlation there? I think that if you, if you just look at – there's individual situations – and uh, that are there are going to be exceptions to the rule. But if we just look at the economic data, 
we know that if you do those four things, that you are much more likely to be prosperous here in America. But you raise a really important point, and I want to address this. Many people in America are afraid of the poor. They don't want to be poor, and they don't want to be reminded that some people are poor, that other people are poor. Poverty is the result of a very complex web of actions by individuals, families, and communities. Now, for that reason, no government program will ever solve the problem of poverty. The essence of poverty is relational. And so that's why I think the solution to poverty is going to come from churches. It's going to come from the nonprofit sector. It's going to come from groups that are focusing on bringing healing through these relationships. Now, where is race relations in that equation? Because what we're seeing around the country is people speaking out and treating African-Americans who are minding their own business as potential criminals. And, yeah, that's a very serious problem. I think the, the promise of America, again, is, is equal opportunity for all, but also justice for all. Uh, and I, when you give people opportunity, I think that's going to be, you know, you break through those glass ceilings and let people, give people the benefit of the doubt, give them opportunity, have high expectations and let people uh, let people keep what they earn and let people be successful. Government certainly has a role to play in kind of stepping out of the way. But also our churches have a lot of work to do uh, on race relations, but also, again, just focusing on those human relationships, which is really, you know, poverty is a poverty of human relationships. The more we can focus on that and focus on what unites us all, the better off we're going to be. Do you see the nation moving forward to more equity, more fairness? And and I know that there is a feeling um, that you get what you earn, but there are also people who are working hard and feel that they're working hard and not getting what they earn. We are never going to solve poverty by focusing on problems of equity and fairness. We need to focus on opportunity and uh, potential success. The, now, people deserve equal opportunity, but we cannot guarantee what they do with that opportunity. Everyone deserves their chance to, to be successful, you know, and uh, let's give everyone that fair chance, but then we have to let things play out the way that they're going to, that they're going to play out. Mississippi Center for Public Policy's Jamison Taylor with MPB's Desiree Frazier. And now to this update. The outgoing leader of the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency says he's leaving because of alcoholism and post-traumatic stress disorder. Lee Smithson resigned Friday. He says his dependence on alcohol hurt his ability to run the agency, and he stepped down after consulting with Governor Phil Bryant. Smithson says he suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder following deployment to Iraq and work after 2005's Hurricane Katrina. Smithson says he began receiving treatment last year. Smithson became emergency management director in 2016. In other news, a Mississippi university is naming a native of the state as its 20th president. Mississippi College trustees on Monday said they had chosen Blake Thompson to lead the 5,000-student Baptist-affiliated institution. Thompson worked on U.S. Senator Thad Cochran's staff before joining academia. Outgoing President Lee Royce retires in late June after 16 years on the job. Coming up in StoryCorps, a first-hand account of what it was like living in the Delta during the Civil Rights Movement. You're listening to Mississippi Edition, the only source for statewide news coverage. This is MPB Think Radio. 
Today's stop on the StoryCorps mobile tour highlights exactly why the program is so important. The main storyteller is attorney Jack Dunbar, who's since passed away. But before he died, he was able to share his recollections of the civil rights era in the Mississippi Delta. He tells his son John about the difficulties involved in doing or not doing the right thing. Now, during that period in the late 50s uh, and uh the 60s in the Mississippi Delta, that was the time of the civil rights movement, I guess, hitting its stride. Uh, How did that affect you and what you saw in Clarksdale? John, it was the time of the civil rights, but it was also a time of a reaction by a lot of the white power structure. The uh, Citizens Council, sort of a modern-day Ku Klux Klan, became very active. There were lawyers who dedicated themselves to... uh, maintaining segregation, and and you either for them or against them. And I can recall that the representatives of the Citizen Council literally went around neighborhoods and asked people how they stood on those issues. I had grown out of background with my mother and grandmothers who, who lived in a segregated society. They were not people who took advantage of African Americans, in my opinion, but they lived in that society, and we grew up in that kind of society, and so I began to develop my own feelings about that, and at the same time, diff- difficult to reconcile a more liberal approach to the race issues as that I began to develop with the ability to raise a family and have an income in a small town, because those of us who later became to be known as black lovers were more antagonistic than that would be ostracized and would not, uh, you know, would be on people's, no pun intended, black list. So it was a difficult, awkward time. And it was a diff- it was difficult for a lot of well-meaning people, too, to transcend from what their parents and grandparents had told them about African-Americans, more benevolent than perhaps other things that were said that you would hear is that, well, they're, they're okay, but they're different people. You know, they're not like us. Those kind of terms were thrown about in the 40s and 50s to young people. And the difficulty that a lot of people had, good people had, was coming to the realization that their parents and grandparents were just wrong. They were wrong. And it's hard to come to that conclusion because these are people who love you, who raised you, cared about you. And you had to come to the conclusion that they were just wrong. And it's not easy for everybody to do. We see more and more people have grown past that, thank thank goodness. But it was an awkward, difficult time for a lot of people. You mentioned that members of the Citizen Council would approach you to try to, I guess, get your commitment to to their cause. Were you confronted by members of uh, the African-American leadership to see if you might uh, make the bold step to stand for them? And what kind of conflict did that pose? Well, I was not officially contacted by the black leadership, although when, when I was city attorney in Clarksdale, I do remember that one thing, several things I was not proud of how I reacted to that. For example, on one occasion, just a nice African-American who was a school superintendent came from Vicksburg, where my father came from, and he knew I had those Vicksburg roots, and he invited me to have lunch with him at the local Holiday Inn. This is, you know, early 60s. And I accepted, and then the more I thought about it, I thought, well, what if somebody sees me having lunch with a black person? That could be a problem. So I called him and made some lousy excuse why I couldn't go, and and I think he knew exactly what I was saying and why, but he was gracious about it. 
And that's one of several things I did that I'm not very proud of. But one thing I did do that I was proud of, when I was city attorney, the black leadership wanted to have a a march through downtown Clarksdale in response to some civil rights issue. And a lot of the Citizens Council put pressure on the city board to not permit them to have a permit to march, to not let them have that march. And I told the board that if they wanted to end the marching, the thing to do was to let these people have this march, not only give them a permit, but lead the parade, and that would, in my opinion, probably be the end of it. If they did not let them march, then they were going to see a whole lot of marches that were not approved either. And the city board fortunately took my advice, and they marched with the chief of police out in front of the parade in uh, there in Clarksdale, and that was the end of it. So I did a few things that I thought maybe made some contribution to that problem that I'm proud of. To hear more of our conversations from the StoryCorps mobile tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps mobile tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The U.S. Supreme Court on Monday struck down a federal law that barred gambling on football, basketball, baseball, and other sports in most states, clearing the way for Mississippi casinos to move forward. American Gaming Association President Jeff Freeman. Illegal sports betting industry is on the ropes, and the court's decision is a victory for the millions of Americans who seek to bet on sports in a safe and regulated manner. Officials say casinos have been in talks with state regulators about draft rules allowing sports betting and that regulators could vote quickly. Last year, Mississippi changed its law to allow sports betting as part of a bill legalizing and regulating fantasy sports. The Mississippi Gaming Commission oversees 28 casinos. Alan Godfrey is executive director of the Mississippi Gaming Commission. He gives MPB's Ashley Norwood a brief history of the ruling. The Professional Amateur Sports Act, PASPA, in its basic form, uh, allowed uh, sports betting at certain states. There was a couple of states that uh, uh, were grandfathered in, and then I think there was a a year window in which uh, states that that met certain criteria could opt in, and and, uh, most states obviously did not. So... What you had was was Nevada, who had the only legal type sports betting. You had a couple others that could offer parlays and uh, very little um, sporting events that they could bet on. So what it what through the years it's basically become other states have said, well, we would like to have sports betting, but due to PASPA, they were not allowed to, and that started New Jersey and their course of filing lawsuits and going back and forth to to uh, take this case all the way to the Supreme Court. So the ruling today, um, do you know when that might take effect in Mississippi? Now, I'm not, a, not an attorney, but I'm assuming that the Supreme Court striking down PASPA means that it is uh, effective immediately, that uh, the law is unconstitutional, and therefore each state can regulate gaming if they want sports betting, they can have it. What that means in Mississippi is, well, the law has already been changed in the state of Mississippi. It was done last year. Uh, but that doesn't mean sports betting can be legally done tomorrow in the casino. There's a process by which 
they have to go through this. Uh, we've got to adopt regulations, publish the regulations, adopt them, and they become effective. Uh, but more importantly, the properties have to prepare their themselves to take the bids. This could potentially um, eliminate the illegal market. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I don't think it'll it'll eliminate the illegal market because it's always been around. I think it will encourage some people that uh, uh, don't bet. I think it'll encourage them to to come to the casino and place a wager. We may make a dent in it. Uh, I'd like to think we would, but I really doubt that we're going to to dent the illegal market. So kind of talk about the potential impact of the Supreme Court ruling. Uh, The impact of the Supreme Court ruling in Mississippi, I believe the the greatest impact is going to be the additional foot traffic that is coming into properties. These are people that they're not coming today, but they're going to come from our surrounding states because it's not offered there, and they're going to put wagers on their favorite college football team or their favorite professional sports team. These regulations are geared more towards how a sports book will operate. Uh, You're going to have to come into the state. You're going to have to come into a licensed property, and that's where you will place your wager. You're not going to be able to get on a mobile device in uh, one city and in Mississippi and place a wager. So the benefit there is you've got to come to the property to place your wager, and that's just additional foot traffic coming in. Alan Godfrey is the executive director of the Mississippi Gaming Commission. Thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Money Talks. Then at 10, it's In Legal Terms. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB public media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral